0: Welcome to the PopeCast, episode 12. This week's Pope is a doozy. He's one of the only guys to have been anti-Pope before getting legitimately elected. He pretty much killed his predecessor and was a bit of a wuss to boot. Yes, even the Bishop of Rome can be a weak-willed flip-flopper, and it followed him around during all 18 years in office. His antics didn't, however, live up to the accusation many now level at him that the Pope's behavior is proof that papal infallibility is false. At number 59, it's Pope Vigilius. Hey there, I'm Matt Sewell, and this is the podcast about popes for people who like history but aren't so crazy about dry, dusty history books. This podcast will be a periodic look into the lives of one of the 264 men who have held or are currently holding the office of the Vicar of Christ, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. So continuing on, this is the second installment in the PopeCast's Infallibility series, a three-episode look into the three popes most often blamed by critics of Catholicism for why papal infallibility is a false doctrine. Are they right? Are they not? Well, first it was Pope Liberius. We did that a couple weeks ago. This week it's Vigilius, and to close out the series, we'll hit Pope Honorius I. So Vigilius was born in Rome around the year 500 to an aristocratic Roman family. His dad was involved in Roman government, and we first see Vigilius entering the service of the church with his ordination as a deacon in 531. Not much else is known about his earlier life. So 531 was a bit of a landmark year for Vigilius. He was made a deacon, as I mentioned. But it also turned out that that year marked the time when Pope Boniface II, the current pope at the time, tried to lay down a rule allowing the present pope— to appoint his own successor, and decided on none other than Vigilius for the job after making that rule. So a little backstory on that. It turned out that Boniface himself was chosen by a similar means. When Pope Saint Felix IV was on his deathbed, there was stirring up a great tension between the Roman and Gothic factions at the time, and Felix, wanting to keep the peace as much as possible, decided to pick his own successor and chose Boniface. So after Felix's death, the rest of the clergy, who didn't care much for Felix's choice, put their own man, Dioscorus, in office as a rival claimant to the throne. Unfortunately for him, and fortunately for Boniface, the guy died just 22 days later, leaving Boniface in sole possession of the papacy. So, back to Vigilius. Boniface really kind of liked that arrangement, and picked Vigilius to succeed him. In any case, the clergy present at the meeting agreed upon the deal, because you're not going to disagree with the Pope if he's sitting right there, probably, But it only took a year for the rest of the clergy to call BS. Boniface rescinded the deal and burned the decree of the rule he had written in that following year. So, Vigilius was left in his original job, and there would be three more men to sit in the chair of Peter before he himself was crowned. So meanwhile, the second successor to Boniface, St. Agapetus I, sent Vigilius as papal representative to Constantinople, where he ended up getting in all kinds of hot water, as we'll see. The empress, Theodora, was an adherent to the widespread monophysite heresy, the belief that Christ had only a divine nature instead of both a divine and a human nature. And she sought to win over Vigilius to her side after her other patsy, the patriarch of Constantinople, had been deposed by Agapetus for being a heretic. Lucky for Theodora, Vigilius was a wuss, and it turned out he could be easily bought. So with a promise of planting him in the chair of Peter, Along with supposedly 700 pounds of gold, Vigilius was willing to do whatever the heck she asked. So when Agapetus died in April of 536, Vigilius headed back to Rome with Theodora's orders in hand. A war was brewing between the Goths and the Byzantines, and Pope St. Silvarius had already been installed as Agapetus's successor by the time Vigilius arrived. The Byzantine army... Uh, to put it shortly, garrisoned the city of Rome, Vigilius handed over the paper recommending him for Pope, and thanks to some false accusations, the Byzantine commander Belisarius had Silvarius deposed and exiled. Vigilius was installed as his quote-unquote successor on March 29th, 537. It was a bummer for Silvarius, too, because after being placed in, into Vigilius's care, he only lived for about eight more months, having died a martyr. He was still a legitimate pope, though, keep in mind, until November 537, which made Vigilius an anti-pope, ushering in the eighth time in church history where two or more men claimed to be the rightful pontiff, and, by the way, it would be far from the last time. Okay, so now here's where it gets really interesting. It was widely known that Vigilius, in order to get his seat in Rome, had publicly assented to a heretical view of Jesus Christ's true nature. He even appeared to be in agreement with that view after being, again, quote-unquote, elected pope in 537. The monophysite heresy easily falls under the category of faith and morals, so wouldn't that mean Vigilius disproves papal infallibility? Not so. According to Patrick Madrid's great book, Pope Fiction, which I've quoted before on the podcast and I'll make sure to put a link to in the show notes, history has made it very clear that Vigilius assented to heresy publicly, but as an antipope. Once he was rightful pope, believe it or not, history is equally clear that he reversed his monophysite beliefs and publicly agreed and decreed that Christ did indeed have two natures, a dogma that had been formally defined the century before at the Council of Chalcedon. So Patrick Madrid writes, quote, it seems as though the charism of infallibility had seized hold of Vigilius when he became the real pontiff, end quote. Okay, so that would be enough drama for any papacy, right? But Vigilius wasn't done yet. Turns out, the Monophysites weren't the only heretics on the scene. On the other side of the spectrum sat the Nestorians, who believed that Christ did have a divine and human nature, but they were only kind of, sort of, connected. In that vein, they held, for example, that Mary was Christotokos, or simply the mother of Christ in his human nature, but not, as the church has held now for centuries, Theotokos, literally God-bearer, the mother of God. To the Nestorians, Jesus couldn't be fully divine and fully human. And to the church, that's heresy, friends. Anyway, more drama came when the emperor Justinian, Theodore's husband, had a vested interest in reconciling with the Monophysites for political reasons, and thus asked Vigilius to condemn three Nestorians in particular. Vigilius initially refused, since two of the Nestorians had since recanted their views and rejoined in full communion with the church, making a condemnation of them unjust. And Vigilius, despite his other shortcomings, at least knew that. But, in any case, it didn't take long for Justinian to use force and Vigilius to crumple under the threats. While celebrating Mass in the Church of St. Cecilia in 545, Vigilius was seized and brought to Constantinople. He still managed to dawdle enough, and it took him more than a year to reach the eastern capital, but given the duress that he was under by his captors, he agreed in 548 finally to condemn the three men. Three years after that, Vigilius had since been freed from imprisonment and reversed his decision, refusing to condemn them, but it didn't take long, surprise, surprise, for Vigilius to flip-flop again, condemning the men not once, but three times over the next six years as a way to appease the emperor. Now, this second instance is still not an argument against papal infallibility. Sure, Vigilius had no integrity, was greedy, power-hungry, and a disgrace to the chair of Peter. Nobody's arguing that. Vigilius's beef in the Nestorian issue was with the individuals, not with the teaching itself. If it had been Nestorianism that Vigilius refused to condemn, then we'd have a problem. Heck, if that were the case, those of us that are Catholic would need to look for a new church, right? But it wasn't the teaching Again, that Vigilius had his sights set on, then off, then set on again, right? It was, the, it was the individuals, and technically he was under no obligation, even as Pope, to either condemn or accept their confession of faith. Good leadership, as it turns out, is not a requirement for the charism of infallibility. So one last notable thing is worth mentioning in this tale of Vigilius. Before his death, Vigilius begrudgingly participated in the Council of Constantinople in 553, what became the fifth ecumenical council of the church. Justinian had convened it and invited bishops from all over the Christian world to address the issue of what are known as the three chapters. The chapters in question were touchy and kind of controversial since they did technically teach error, but the error, instead of being obstinate on the part of the authors, came instead as a result of some misunderstood language, that St. Cyril of Alexandria had rightfully used against the Nestorians. So either way, it was another opportunity for Vigilius to flip-flop and complain. It also didn't help that he couldn't understand Greek very well, to be fair. In terms of the council, though, Vigilius didn't like that there were more Eastern bishops than Western bishops, and he initially threw a bit of a papal tantrum and refused to come to the party. But before it was over, Vigilius agreed to approve the council's decrees and tied up his last bit of waffling by 554, thankfully, making sure that the council documents were in line enough with the Council of Chalcedon from the century prior. So the sad story of Vigilius ended with him being forced to reside in Constantinople over that final eight years of his papacy. Exhausted and already nearing death, he was mercifully released to return to Rome in 555, but died on the way. Depressing. So our quote for this week comes from the council documents of the Council of Constantinople, And though this segment isn't written by Vigilius himself, it holds great importance on a number of levels and obviously mentions him by name, as you'll see in a minute. For one, the documents, as all church documents are, are founded first and foremost on the bedrock of sacred scripture, and I think that's awesome. Secondly, particularly with with this snippet, it tells much about the benefit of fraternal correction, the importance of having people around you willing to call you to excellence. So here it is. The most religious Vigilius happened to be present in this imperial city and took part in all the criticisms against the three chapters. He had frequently condemned them by word of mouth and in his writings. Later, he gave a written agreement to take part in our council and to study with us the three chapters so that we could all issue an appropriate definition of the true faith. The most pious emperor, prompted by what was acceptable to us, encouraged a meeting between Vigilius and ourselves because it is proper that the priesthood should impose a common conclusion to matters of common concern. Consequently, we asked his reverence to carry out his written undertakings. It did not seem right that the scandal over these three chapters should continue, and that the church of God should be further disturbed. In order to persuade him, we reminded him of the great example left us by the apostles, and of the tradition of the fathers. Even though the grace of the Holy Spirit was abundant in each of these apostles so that none of them required the advice of another in order to do his work, nevertheless they were loath to come to a decision on the issue of the circumcision of Gentiles until they had met together to test their various opinions against the witness of the Holy Scriptures. In this way they unanimously reached the conclusion which they wrote to the Gentiles. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from unchastity." End quote. Powerful stuff. So perhaps it's those who are most in danger of lacking a strong will, lacking the intestinal fortitude, as John Paul said, who need a friend to demand greatness from them, to demand right and just outcome in every situation. Vigilius may not have been that. Heck, he made that much very clear. But in his story, perhaps we can be encouraged to always stand up for what is right, no matter the consequences, and may we always also be willing to be that for someone else. Who's the Vigilius in your life? Anyway, that's it for this week. If you're enjoying the Popecast, we'd love to hear from you. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you're listening to this. Your review will, of course, read it on the air. But if you provide feedback on what you think, the more you rate, the more likely it's seen and listened to by others, and the better feedback I get, the better the podcast can become. Also, please consider joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash That patronage, even at a buck per episode, will get you some sweet patron-only content and will allow me to continue devoting time to producing these great bios on the Popes. So that's patreon.com slash M-A-T-T-S-E-W-E-L-L. That's patreon.com slash So we offer prayers for the soul of Pope Vigilius and ask the intercession of those saintly pontiffs who came before and after him. Until next time.